You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Woodrow Wilson, the 28th President of the United States. Known by some as a leader of the progressive movement during his time, his administration implemented child labor laws, established the Federal Reserve, and led America into victory during World War I. In 1919, he received a Nobel Peace Prize for the creation of the League of Nations, which set out to create and maintain world peace. There are other adorable, beautiful fun facts about President Wilson, like the fact that he kept sheep at the White House and that his favorite food was chicken salad. I got a fun fact for you. Maybe a not-so-fun fact. How about the fact that Woodrow Wilson was a white supremacist? Perhaps the most impassioned white supremacist to ever preside in the Oval Office, all things considered, and a staunch KKK supporter. In fact, his actions as president fostered an environment that led to the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan and amplification of segregation. I'm Andre, and this is the Redacted History Podcast. Let's venture back to the beginning of Woodrow Wilson's life as the son of two Confederate supporters. Woodrow Wilson was born December 28, 1956, in Staunton, Virginia, a little over 100 miles outside of Richmond, the future capital of the Confederacy. When the Civil War began in 1861, Wilson was living in Georgia with his family. His earliest memories probably included watching his mother care for Confederate soldiers and attending church with his father, who served as a chaplain to the Confederate Army. His family, like far too many Southern people, relied on the assistance of slavery to get by. Wilson would be approaching nine years old when the Civil War finally ended. Typically, after a war, the losing side would face some sort of repercussion. President Abraham Lincoln felt that any harsh consequence would breed future resentment. He instead chose to pardon all Confederates that were involved. You would think that the South would just cut their losses and move forward. Establish a new society from the ashes with black Americans. This, of course, did not happen. The South was left scorned not only by the destruction and loss of hundreds of thousands of their friends and family members, and the fact that they could no longer benefit off the labor of enslaved people. It was up to the women of the South to pick up the pieces, and out of this brokenness, the lost cause of the Confederacy was born. To understand Woodrow Wilson, it's important to understand the lost cause of the Confederacy, commonly just referred to as the lost cause. This propaganda began and spread like wildfire during Woodrow Wilson's formative years. But what is the lost cause exactly? Many of you are probably familiar with it, even if you don't know it by name. The lost cause consists of six basic principles. One, the secession causing the Civil War was because of states' rights, not slavery. Two, African Americans were loyal slaves who were unprepared for freedom and happy in their roles. Three, Confederate soldiers were fine Southern Christian gentlemen who served a heroic cause. Four, the South only lost because the North had more men and more resources. Which brings us to number five. Robert E. Lee is a hero and an icon. And finally, number six, Southern women were sanctified, pure, and loyal. If any of these sound 
familiar as talking points, it's because organizations like the Confederate Memorial Literary Society and Daughters of the Confederacy have worked very hard to preserve this version of history. Although the lost cause ideology is steeped in half-truths, if not outright lies, according to most historians. Keep in mind, Woodrow Wilson would have been about 9 to 21 years old at this time a time that also runs parallel to the Reconstruction era in the South. Reconstruction is categorized as the time in U.S. history focused on repairing the country after the Civil War and integrating newly freed enslaved Black people into society. Around this time, we got the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments that were introduced. The 13th Amendment, ratified in 1865, abolished slavery except in cases in which it served as a punishment for crime. Major loophole, but we can talk about that at another time. The 14th Amendment established born and naturalized citizenship as well as equal protection under the law. This made it so that those previously enslaved were now citizens. And the 15th Amendment protected black men and their right to vote. Black men took full advantage of these new freedoms and actively participated in the political process. They elected some of the first black men into office, including Robert Smalls, who you may remember from a previous episode of this podcast. Unfortunately, this progress was met with opposition from the first Ku Klux Klan. The Ku Klux Klan, better known as the KKK, is an organization spawned out of the need to keep the control over society in the hands of the Southern white. They used intimidation, murder, destruction of property, and whatever other means to prevent progress for black people and white Republicans in the South. The basic tenets of the KKK were directly connected to the lost cause and white supremacy. In 1868, a pamphlet titled Principles and Purposes of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan began to circulate in Louisiana. It emphasizes and expands on the philosophies of the KKK and the importance of ideas such as law and order, freedom of speech, white supremacy, the importance of being and raising good Christians, and protection of the flag, the Bible, and the Constitution. Quick pause. All, does any of this sound like really familiar? Do any of these principles, law and order, being a good Christian, protection of the flag, freedom of speech, the Bible, Constitution, blah, blah, blah. All of that sounds really familiar to me, but let's continue. This pamphlet also asserts that the KKK does not condone violence. The closing remark reads, Jesus Christ is the Klansman's criteria of character, and to him we look for light, love, and life. Ironically, the violence enacted by the KKK was so out of hand at the time that even their national leader, known as the Grand Wizard, attempted and failed to disband the organization in 1869. Fortunately, Ulysses S. Grant, the 18th president of the United States and the president tasked with driving Reconstruction forward post-Civil War and post-Andrew Johnson, recognized the need to protect black citizens. His administration pushed forward the Enforcement Acts, also known as the KKK Acts in 1870 and 1871, to help indict members of the organization and use military force to suppress their efforts. The First Enforcement Act stated that people could not gather to obstruct the constitutional rights of others. But that wasn't enough. Less than a year later, Congress passed the Second and Third Enforcement Acts to place polling places under federal supervision and allow military force to be used against anyone in violation of these acts. The three acts 
were fairly successful and the KKK was significantly diminished. However, diminished does not mean gone entirely. Following Grant's presidency, black Southern citizens no longer had the same level of protection. This led the country deep into the Jim Crow era and segregation, the black codes. The KKK operated at a decreased level at this time in the shadows. As Woodrow Wilson grew older, so did his beliefs in segregation and the lost cause. During his time as president of Princeton, there are accounts of him discouraging black applicants from entering the school, deeming it inadvisable, even though there was nothing in the university's laws that would prevent a black man from attending. In 1902, at the age of 46, he wrote a five-volume history textbook titled A History of the American People, a textbook describing the KKK as an invisible empire protecting the Southern way of life. It also states that the government had an intolerable burden of sustaining votes of ignorant Negroes. Three excerpts from this book would later be used in the film Birth of a Nation. And if you've ever seen or heard of Birth of a Nation, you know that it is quite possibly the most racist movie to ever be released. But before Birth of a Nation was released on February 8th, 1915, Woodrow Wilson was elected governor of New Jersey and later president of the United States in 1913. When Wilson entered office, the cabinet was very white and very Southern. They were shocked at the amount of diversity within the federal offices and wanted to segregate. Wilson insisted that this resegregation was not to be taken as an insult to the black community, but rather a means to avoid any tension. The post office, the Navy, and the Treasury Department were all segregated, again, just to name a few. Black people were also terminated, held back from promotions, and or denied wage increases. Soon, employees were required to include a photo with their application for civil service positions. These employees had grown accustomed to the stability their roles previously offered. These changes led to an inability to maintain their current lifestyles, purchase homes, and build generational wealth. This was especially true in the D.C. area. Woodrow Wilson was quite literally setting black people back all by himself. Black activists of the time, including William Monroe Trotter, W.E.B. Du Bois, and Marcus Garvey, all spoke out against these changes. Trotter and Du Bois previously supported Wilson with caution, but their faith in him decreased quickly. Trotter and several other black leaders requested a meeting with President Wilson in November of 1914. This led to a heated exchange between Trotter and Wilson. Trotter allegedly asked Wilson if his idea of quote-unquote new freedom meant new slavery for black citizens. Wilson took offense to this question and Trotter's tone and promptly had him removed. To add insult to injury, on February 18, 1915, Wilson was responsible for a special showing of Birth of a Nation at the White House. The three-hour silent film is overflowing with blackface, lost cause propaganda, and negative black stereotypes portraying black people as lazy, unintelligent, and dangerous. White actors in blackface depicted black politicians barefoot, sneaking booze and eating on the White House floor. There's even a scene where a Southern belle jumps off a cliff to avoid an assault at the hands of a brutish white man in blackface. The fears of white supremacists were on the big screen, with the KKK as the heroes of the story, riding around in their white pointed hoods. The movie was KKK porn for all intents and purposes. 
And Woodrow Wilson showed this movie in the White House. He called it history written in lightning. Following the release of Birth of a Nation, there was a resurgence of the KKK. We're talking almost 50 years after President Grant knocked them back into their caves. In 1915, a man named William Simmons and some of his associates burned a cross on Stone Mountain in Georgia to signal a revival of the Klan. Simmons' actions were heavily inspired by Birth of a Nation and the national spotlight that Woodrow Wilson had put it in. In fact, the KKK didn't even burn crosses until after it was shown in this film. A classic example of life imitating art. But why burn crosses? It is believed that the practice was borrowed from an old Scottish tradition of burning a cross as a sort of battle cry. But who are, who are you fighting? Who are you riding into battle against if it's not against the black race? During Wilson's time as president, this new KKK, or the second phase of the KKK, grew rapidly and relatively unchecked. Lynchings and cross burnings were seen as a local issue. The FBI, which was still fairly new at the time, could only get involved if the KKK violated federal law. The police, along with other public officials, were either corrupted, scared, or unconcerned in several cases. Anyone deemed other or morally corrupt in the eyes of the KKK was unsafe and on their own. This included not only the black community, but anyone of a different faith, nationality, or sexual orientation. And all of this caused a melting pot of racial tensions, which were already high, and racial violence increased across the country. When black soldiers returned from World War I, they could not find work in civil positions they were qualified for. This was also around the time that the Great Migration, which we've talked about previously, started. Black people were taking the vacant jobs that were left behind by so many white people when they went overseas to fight in the Great War. Various newspapers churned out stories at this time accusing various black men of attacking white women. DC black citizens were becoming increasingly more frustrated with the current circumstances that they were in. On July 19, 1919, a news story broke out claiming that Negroes had attacked the white girl. The entire weekend, various white mobs attacked and terrorized black people in the DC area. When the black community had had enough and began to finally fight back on that Monday, Woodrow Wilson called in 2,000 troops to finally stop the violence. And things wouldn't end there. We would move into the summer of 1919, which would be referred to as the Red Summer, Black people were brutally murdered or attacked in several states all across the country. Additionally, many of their homes and businesses were destroyed, leaving them displaced. Some notable racial riots and massacres during Wilson's presidency include the 1917 East St. Louis Massacre, the 1917 East St. Louis Massacre, the Chicago Massacre, and just two months after he left office, the 1921 Tulsa Massacre. So you can see how a president's outright racism and discrimination in office and him not being afraid to speak it could lead to so many people following suit in the country. Wilson and his wife exited office in March of 1921. In 1924, Woodrow Wilson would die at the age of 67 after his body could no longer carry on after a long-term illness. The KKK reached peak membership that same year at around 4 million members. 
Unlike the previously established KKK, this new version was nationwide. It was estimated that 350 delegates were Klansmen at the 1924 National Democratic Convention in New York. Over the years, they would use their political power and reach to push forward prohibition and avoid consequences for their acts of terror. The KKK continued to prove to be extremely dangerous for several groups. Protestant ministers, the Jewish Anti-Defamation League, the NAACP, and many more all did their part to expose and stop the KKK. Brave journalists reported on the atrocities they committed and, in some cases, lists exposing who the men were under the hood. The real tipping point occurred in 1925. D.C. Stevenson, a high-ranking Klansman under the title Grand Dragon, was convicted of the rape, kidnapping, and murder of German-American woman Madge Oberholzer. This would be a deal-breaker for many Klansmen. Memberships drastically declined at that point. In 1929, the Great Depression went underway. And by 1930, it was estimated that the KKK had decreased to about 30,000 members. This same year, the KKK still organized a march in Washington, D.C., right down Pennsylvania Avenue. And in 1944, that second version of the KKK formally disbanded. The organization would return once again and for the final time in response to the civil rights movement. Though not at their former size, they were still a major threat carrying out horrific acts of violence in the name of white supremacy. One of their most noble acts of terror is the 1963 Montgomery church bombing that killed four unsuspecting black girls, Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robertson, and the youngest, Carol Denise McNair. The NAACP estimates that between 1882 to 1968, 4,743 lynchings took place in the United States. It is important to remember this number does not include all of the other acts of brutality, property damage, or displaced citizens at the hands of white supremacy, of which a nice chunk can be sourced by Woodrow Wilson's actions and inactions. Today, Woodrow Wilson's legacy is receiving some much-needed criticism. In June of 2020, the Board of Trustees at Princeton agreed to remove Wilson's name from the university's School of Public and International Affairs. It is worth mentioning, however, that he is still one of America's most loved presidents. I do want to make it clear that Woodrow Wilson was not simply a man of his time or product of his environment. Woodrow Wilson was a highly educated man who, despite all of his formal education and opportunities, maintained a significant, harsh blind spot when it came to racial equality, and in doing so, upheld the KKK and white supremacy, the effects of which can still be felt today. As of 2017, the Ku Klux Klan has active chapters in 20 different states, hate crimes are on the rise, and the lost cause propaganda is still on people's minds and tongues if you listen hard enough. Be cautious and be aware, for white supremacy is still alive and well. With some thanks to President Woodrow Wilson. Until next time. This episode's script was written and researched by Maya Thompson and edited and narrated by Andre White. If you like this episode of the Redacted History Podcast, consider leaving a rating, a like, or a review or all three, it goes a long way. And I truly appreciate all of the support that you all give this podcast on a daily basis. March is Women's History Month and all March, we're going to be bringing you stories on women that I think are pretty damn cool. So be on the lookout for episodes every week of the month of March as we celebrate Women's History Month. <laughs>